At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. I'm thinking like, oh, snap. Like, this is going to be some, I thought it was going to be like an event with a lot of black people because I'm like looking at the label, like right. chocolate, whatever. So we show up at the bottle shop and I'm looking around and I'm like, what the hell? Hey, I'm Tamara. And I'm Derek. And we are the co-founders of Soul Foodie. Soul Foodie is a brand in an online community that tells the stories and showcases the talents of creators and entrepreneurs excelling and innovating in the Black food and beverage space. We have created the Black and Highly Flavored Podcast to bring the stories of these innovators to life. We also get a little personal because we want to introduce you, our listeners, not only to the product or brand, but also to the people behind the brand. So today we have Tinu Driver on, and Tinu is creating a documentary about the history of Black women in the world of beer. And I have been fascinated by stories of Black women in the beer industry. And you think about it, beer and specifically the craft beer vertical is traditionally a white male dominated field. And so the stories of black women excelling once again and innovating in this niche are really compelling to me. I agree. I think for me, as you know, I'm a wine drinker and cocktail. So my friends and I aren't really beer drinkers, but I found this interview to be very educational and the fact that she decided to embark into this field that is dominated by white males. It was just fascinating to me. So I'm, I'm really, I hope, you know, our listeners enjoy this interview as much as I did and, and get a lot out of it. Cause I know I definitely did. So let me start by saying this. I understand you're an attorney, you're a lawyer. Yes. I'm a lawyer too. So I think we have that in common. And we also have another thing in common, the Boston connection. You were born in born in Boston. When did you did were you raised in Boston too? Or I was not raised. No. We moved we relocated to Maryland when I was one because my dad was starting graduate school at Howard University. Got Um, it. Okay. Yeah. H U. H U. But yeah, I have a brother who's uh, three years older. So he and I were both born there. My parents were students. My dad was at Northeastern. My mom was at UMass Boston. That's where I went to school. Big Yay! ups to NU Huskies. <laughs> That's the connection. See, we have another connection. Yes. Another yes. one. So yes, the Boston. I went to college in at Northeastern and born and raised in the Northeast in Hartford, Connecticut. So there's some oh. synergy there. Okay, so you're a lawyer and you're currently an executive director of a nonprofit, a community organizer a first generation daughter of Nigerian immigrants. I mean, you have so you have such a vast, interesting background. All the things. Yes. 
Today, we're going to be talking about your documentary and the world of craft beer. So with all that, how did it come to this, this documentary on craft beer? What what was the catalyst for that? Yeah, the short answer is kind of just following my curiosity. But the longer answer is, I think, a confluence of all those different kind of intersections of my life. Um, I think the, the most foundational part being that um, I grew up with a an awareness of the connection of Africa and Africans to the history of beer. Um, the first beer brewer I ever met was actually a family friend who worked for um, a brewery in Nigeria. And as you all mentioned, I am the daughter of Nigerian immigrants. And so my earliest memories of any type of beer around the house or me was basically going to these, you know, parties and get togethers that my parents are very sociable people And there's a pretty large contingent of Nigerians in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, which is where I grew up. So, you know, there's a whole community of folks in the whole village of people that helped raise me. And so growing up, we would have these parties, you know, holidays, birthdays, naming ceremonies, et cetera. And there would always be like this cooler that was kind of near where the men would sit while they were watching soccer or arguing about politics or whatever. And there was usually just three things in that cooler. There was uh, Malta, which is like a um, it's a non-alcoholic kind of malt beverage. It's also yep. really popular in the Caribbean. There was Malta, Guinness, and Heineken. That was it. That's it. <laughs> like, that was it. Like, I don't even know if I knew there were other beers <laughs> besides Guinness and Heineken up until, you know, I got became an adult. So that was, you know, kind of that framed what I thought of beer. And then as I even began venturing into this project, I was having a conversation with my mom about it. And, you know, it took me a while to kind of tell her what I was working on because, you know, Depending on certain folks, you know, alcohol and beer still has, you know, yeah. some some stigma for some folks. But anyway, so I'm telling her about this project. And she just kind of just, you know, mentions off kind of random, oh, yeah, your grandma was a brewer. And I'm like, excuse me? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, like stories I've never heard, right? right. So my, my maternal grandmother, Alice Adegbile Ajayi. So my maternal mother actually died when my mom was 14. So I never met her, never knew her. And so, yeah, I had never heard the story, did not know this. But apparently, yeah, grandma was about that life. And, you know, she was a hustler and not only made um, kind of the traditional beer uh, uh, in her village called Burukutu, but she made it, she bottled it, she sold it. She had people that worked for her to distribute it. Yeah, she had like a whole thing, like a whole enterprise. And so... Since learning that, you know, I've become fascinated with connecting with her spirit and connecting with just, you know, I'm just asking questions and doing research about that as well. So, um, what happened to that business? Did it pass? Did it mm-hmm. pass when she passed? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, um, at a certain point, um, my grand, this is what my mom told me, my grandmother began attending a particular type of um, church and was told by certain folks in that church that she had to stop selling beer because it was in conflict with, you know, religion or the belief system. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty angry about that. (laughs) I've been processing a lot of like epigenetic anger about that, (laughs) but yeah. So, um, so she stopped. Which is have which you been able to find like any artifacts, any pictures or labels from the bottles? Or? I've got her recipe. My uncle, oh, yeah, wow. my okay. mom had a whole WhatsApp conversation with my uncle, so I've got like 
her recipe and her processes. And one of the hopes is that particularly now, as we figure, keep an eye on what's going on with the pandemic with COVID, I'm hoping to actually do some shooting in Nigeria and um, oh, spend some okay. time over there to get, cause some of the women that worked for her apparently are still alive. Oh, um, wow. And so if I have the opportunity to, you know, talk to them or, you know, to, you know, see if there's anything that might still be around that would connect, help connect that story. I'm, I'm hoping. So we'll see. Did yeah. you find out if there were any others in the, in her village that did something similar or was she primarily, they all worked for her. So when she shut down the business, it just kind of ended there. Well, I would think, I mean, this beverage, this drink, Botokutu, it's pretty, it's common. So I would imagine, I'm not sure, but I would imagine that there are other women mm-hmm. in her village and other lots of other villages that that also brewed and still make the drink. So I know it's still being made. Like it's still, there's still women, you know, that make, make this. Okay. And so I'm hoping to talk, in addition to connecting with my grandmother's own story around that, I'm actually hoping to find women that are like literally are still making it and talking to them, you know, about, you know, what it's like doing that now. The drink my grandmother made was made out of um, what's called red guinea corn, what we call sorghum in the U.S. And we know where sorghum grows in the U.S. and we know how it got there. Um, (laughs) So, um, so it's interesting even making those connections again with some of our Southern and American food ways and how they are so they're directly attached to and connected to the transatlantic slave trade and to the West Coast of Africa and beer being no exception to that. So yeah, definitely still women who who do that. Just kind of knew the history of, you know, Egypt and Ethiopia and just kind of generally that um, the, the craft of beer brewing, you know, came from ancient cultures um, and they weren't, it wasn't just, you know, monks in Europe, you know, <laughs> okay. who made beer. And then what really triggered, I think, this this whole path for, for me was when we moved back, my husband and I moved back to North Carolina in 2015, um, we actually met in, at school at, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which is where I went to undergrad as well as law school. And we actually moved to Boston after we both finished law school and started um, working there, moved back to North Carolina. And um, I think prior to moving back to North Carolina, I probably had been to, I don't know, maybe one craft brewery. I remember Night Shift Brewing in Everett, Massachusetts was one of the first craft breweries I'd ever actually physically gone to. Okay. And when we moved back to North Carolina, the presence of craft breweries, particularly in Asheville, which is in Western North Carolina, is really significant. It and is. We had, we had gone out to Asheville just for like a weekend. And that's kind of, you know, it's just they're everywhere. And, you know, and so it's a big, a strong part of the culture and a strong part of the economy in North Carolina. So when you talk about craft beer, the craft beer industry in the South, the North Carolina is a big part of that. What exactly is craft beer? How does, and how does craft beer differ from the Budweiser I can get in the local Publix, you know, a malt liquor? What's, what is, exactly is craft beer and how is it, how would you define it? Yeah, that's actually a really controversial question for some for oh, some kids. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a great question because of the fact that you know craft beer drinkers are super passionate people, and this is actually one of these kind of like philosophical conversations that craft brewers have about like what's considered craft. And I think it's becoming such a controversial question because so many of the large multinational beer companies are buying up, right, these craft and micro breweries. And so there's always this question about like, well, is such and such breweries still considered craft if now they're owned by, you know, New Belgium? But for me, it comes down to questions about who made it, um, the level of production, like, you know, large scale versus small scale, 
um, whether you're independent, you know, or part of, you know, a, a larger conglomerate or multinational corporation. And then I think part, one of the things that's inherent in craft beer is this idea about like innovation and style, right? So this idea that craft breweries often are making different styles of beer. So it's not just, you know, when you get a bud, you're going to get a pale ale, you know, you're going to get a kind of the same thing. Whereas craft beer, often you're using like different ingredients, you're using, you're making different styles of beer, you might be doing sours, you might be doing stouts, you might be, you know, integrating different flavors, you know, there's some squash or some peach or sweet potato, you know, kind of that, that idea. Squash beer? I was just, I was, um, there's a, a brewery in Durham called Full Steam, and I just saw that they have a delicata squash. That does not sound appealing to me. I think it's a little sweet. I think it just depends what you do with the squash. Yeah, I'm sure. sure. You get some caramelization on it or something like that, get some sweetness to get some of the sugars out. Um, But yeah, I mean, this moment when I realized that there was this disconnect and this divergence between how I knew beer and how most people were experiencing beer was um, there was a bottle shop nearby that was having um, a release. Sometimes, you know, breweries will have these release events when there's a beer that's really popular or seasonal that comes out. And um, there's actually, I have the bottle here. There's a brewery in Winston-Salem, North Carolina called Foothills. And they have a beer called Sexual Chocolate. And I'm going (laughs) to zoom in. I know people can't see it, but um, you'll see the label. has a foxy brown-esque looking... uh, black woman with an afro on the label and obviously sexual chocolate is a an homage coming to, to america come right. on now yeah that's You're classic right. yeah. you know that's yeah. part of the canon of black film and so i'm thinking like oh snap like this is gonna be some i thought it was gonna be like a event with a lot of black people because i'm like looking at the label like right. chocolate whatever so we show up at the bottle shop and i'm looking around and i'm like the hell is going because you know it was like <laughs> there was not i think it was maybe one of the black women i saw on this event it was really popular it's a very popular uh beer that comes out kind of every fall or so um and the, the brewery has actually since changed the label due to some concerns that folks have raised about things like cultural misappropriation etc um but um that's when i realized like oh wait a minute hold up now like the way that i think about beer and how I associate it with associate with it culturally is really different than how a lot of other folks do. And so I think that's kind of where that the kind of the initial seed uh, was planted, just kind of noticing uh, that that divergence. We will be right back after this message. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. So let's talk about the documentary for a little bit. Sure. What was the genesis for you to create this documentary? So that spark 
actually was a, another documentary project that I worked on and very much also tied to Durham. In 2018, I was still in the certificate program at the Center for Documentary Studies, getting a certificate in documentary arts. And I had spent part of the summer producing an audio project called Masterpiece, which was about a um, DJ slash artist slash activist in Durham uh, named Gemini. And Jem is a visual artist and was moving into a new um, space that was essentially an old repurposed tobacco warehouse in downtown Durham that just happened to be located next to a new brewery, actually a brewery that's based in Wilmington that opened a Durham location. And so I was going to Jem's opening in Jem's new space. And, uh, you know, it was this really nice day and I'm walking by this brewery. And so they have like these big kind of like garage door kind of things. They had them open mm-hmm. and then the whole cornhole situation going on. Cause you know, you gotta have cornhole <laughs> at a brewery. And, um, this is, and I don't, don't know how familiar some of the listeners might be with, um, Durham, North Carolina as, as a city in, in a place, but you know, we're in this time where we're talking about the history of Tulsa and the legacy of uh, racial violence that happened and destroyed a lot of the economic wealth of that community. And you had a similar situation that happened in, in Durham in the Haytai community as well, as it relates to kind of the impact of urban renewal, the building of the Durham Freeway, which decimated um, the historic Black Haytai community. And right. um, the location of Jim's space in this brewery is, is actually kind of within that vicinity, not too far off. And so kind of walking, you know, from my car into the space and I'm walking by this brewery, and I just kind of look around and everyone appears to be white. And I think, oh, huh, interesting. And mind you, I'm also in a place where across the street is one of the largest public housing communities in Durham that's also in severe need of repair. And it was just like this very strange dissonance. It was this moment where I was kind of both, I was experiencing all the different ways that people experience Durham depending on how you're socially located. You know, it's right, a place right. of immense you know, economic opportunity and also of some of the most severe poverty in the state of North Carolina. And so I walked into Jem's space and Jem's art is centered on black femmes, black bodies. And so just blackity, black, black, black. So I'm in Jem's, you know, (laughs) art space and I come back out and it's all white. And so it's just like this real, this really interesting dissonance. And I kind of filed it. One of the things that I had also noticed was about where breweries show up in communities. Mm. And they often are the canary in the coal mine of Mm. gentrification um, because they often locate, you know, kind of in these industrial areas, kind of on the edges of town, maybe near the train tracks. Right. Because of the type of space, you know, that they need for, you know, large tanks and ship, you know, shipping, if they're doing canning and shipping. And often they're bringing in a clientele that looks really different from the folks that live right around that brewery, that space. And so that is actually one of the themes that I've been thinking a lot about and actually talking to, to white brewers about, you know, is like, how do they think of themselves in, you know, could be a historically black, Latino, whatever neighborhood that looks really different, right? From the, the neighborhood surrounding you. So, so fast forward a few months, and I'm at the Haytai Heritage Film Festival, which is at the Historic Haytai Cultural Center. And during one of the breaks, we were getting some refreshments and they were serving Celeste's beer from Harlem Brewing. And the person serving was talk, talking about Celeste and um, how this was brewed by a Black woman. We were like, oh, that's, that's you know, bad. That's awesome. That's great. And then he also mentioned how Celeste was apprenticing 
a young woman in Eastern North Carolina. And we were just like, what? And you didn't know who this was? No, I didn't know who this was. It was just, you okay. know, and we were like, it was like record scratch. Like what? Word? In Eastern North Carolina? You know? Um, yeah. So I had no idea who that was. And so just kind of was like, okay, that's interesting. Kind of, you know, filed it. Time I had planned to take a research trip up to Pittsburgh, which is where my sister and her family live to attend Fresh Fest. And then I get to Fresh right. Fest and I'm like, oh, Oh, okay. No, there's, this is a thing. I hear that. I I have not had a chance to go, but I hear it's an amazing event. It is a thing. I felt like I, I was like, I felt like I was just laid it on the, I was like, oh my, like, it's a thing. Like black beer culture, black beer, everything. It's a thing. And, um, so, you know, they have folks who breweries, black owned breweries are serving beer. And I go up to one of the breweries and I look down at the person's business card and I see Rocky Mount, North Carolina. And I look up and I said, and it was Brie. It was Brianna Break from Space Okay. Life. And that's when it clicked. I'm like, you're the person that I've heard about. You're the person I heard about at the Big Hate Type Film Festival that's being mentored by Celeste Beattie. So obviously Brie was busy serving beer and all that. So I said, well, let's connect. We both get back to North Carolina. And we did. So that was, that was the what summer, fall of 2019. And, you know, talked to Brie about kind of, the, you know, the project and what I was thinking and working on. And just got to, got to spend time knowing more about her. So she was, was really the journey. genesis. She she's she's your partner in this in in, in this endeavor. Yeah, her existing. <laughs> it's interesting okay. because for her, she part of Bree's and I don't want to tell Bree's story for her, but I know that, you know, Celeste and and learning about Celeste and knowing that Celeste existed was a big part of Bree's journey. And then for me, knowing that Bree existed was big because for many folks, if you don't grow up necessarily, let's say, in a family that makes beer or grow up around this as an industry, uh, particularly as a black woman, you don't necessarily see it as an option. So you stated that one of the objectives of the documentary was to explain how black women throughout history can reclaim their identity and the identity that most people associated Mm -hmm. with craft beer is it's predominantly white it's predominantly male i would say middle to upper income it has this whole hipster dynamic attached to it so can you explain what you mean by this yeah so it is actually one of the things that comes to mind is um thinking about spaceway which is the name of freeze brewery the name of her brewery comes from a few things when it it comes from um, an influence of afrofuturism which is a big part of Bree's formation and but one of the other kind of connections of the name is trying to decrease the space between us. And I think the idea of how beer has often been used, for example, at the beer summit that President Obama had following the arrest of Professor Henry Louis Gates by a white officer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. they had a beer get together in the Rose Garden. A, yeah. And so yeah. the idea, and so, you know, I, Bree and I have talked about the fact that, you know, he didn't choose tea, he didn't choose coffee. He didn't choose Henny. He didn't choose Patron. You know, he chose he beer. Chose beer. And so just the way that beer has been viewed as this, you know, this thing that people gather around, you know, even the tradition of, you know, in Ireland and England and, you know, going to the pub, you know, and, and the pub, you know, the pub being the public house. And so on the one hand, it is helping people to see that even though they've been told or showed one story that would appear to exclude them or appear mm-hmm. to communicate that they don't belong, that this belongs to us, that this is actually something that is connected to, to how we have you know, evolved as, as a civilization. 
for some folks is still viewed as taboo. I think some of the distance and some of the reasons that even the example I gave about my grandmother, the ways in which religion was invoked as a way to kind of stigmatize any type of proximity to alcohol. And even in, in history, you see a really close relationship between the uh, the abolitionist movement and the temperance movement, right? And so there was a time in which, you know, some folks said, hey, you know, Black folks, we got enough to worry about. We got enough to deal with. We got all these stereotypes. We got all these things. Let's just not even get yeah, anyway yeah. near alcohol. Right. Right. Let's feed not poke in, that feed bear. In, feed yeah. into these, yeah, tropes of being, you know, lazy and insolent and drunk, whatever. And let's just, right, you know, whatever. Just, you know, whatever. We're just trying to survive out here in this world. Exactly. So it's part like a declaration, but it's also this question because there is this history of alcohol being used as both a tool of, you know, liberation, but also a tool of oppression, to be quite frank. You know, I mean, when you talk about, you know, we were talking about the differences of kind of craft beer and bud, I forgot to make the distinction about like malt liquor, you know, that's a product that was, you know, made uh, with inferior ingredients and intentionally targeted towards black and, you know, Hispanic, Latino demographic. Different alcohol content. Yeah, different. I mean, the, the serving size, right? So 40 ounces, like two and a half of these, and that's considered, this is a little over a pint, and that's considered one serving. And you're talking about at right. 14% alcohol. So mm-hmm. yeah, people go act the fool. <laughs> and, you know, and you're adding all kinds of sugar and additives and stuff to get the alcohol, right, content kicked up. And, and, and hence you have, you know, kind of the, how the, the ways in which that type of product affects, you know, the body and things like that. So it is, this belongs to us as kind of this declaration. And it's also, I think, this question, right, that we're also asking in terms of what does that mean even now? Like, one of the things that's been really interesting for me to follow is the rise of sobriety culture, particularly around, amongst younger populations. And I think that's why you're seeing some of the, even the beer companies coming out with like these hard seltzers and, you know, these different products, but how can we be a better village to each other, whether, you know, you decide to be a brewer, whether you decide that consuming beer is not helpful because you're, you're still facing some of the same struggles, right? You're still facing some of the same challenges around representation, around um, knowing that you belong in community, knowing that, you know, you have a choice and that you have freedom in that. Sure. I just wanted to ask, and you mentioned that you have met some great women that are excelling and innovating in the world mm-hmm. of craft beer. You mentioned Brianna. Uh, <laughs> is there anyone else that you would like to kind of just kind of talk about or any, yeah. anybody else? Yeah, well, kind of hearkening to close to your hometown in, in New Haven, Connecticut, there's Rhythm Brewing, which was founded by um, Elisa Bowens Mercado. Okay. Uh, so she's the fir- first black woman to own a brewery in Connecticut. Oh, wow. I have to visit that when I go there. Yes. Um, and then um, definitely Dr. J. Nicole Beckham, who is, I believe she is in Richmond, Virginia, and runs an organization called Crafted for All. And so Dr. J. is one of these like beer scholars and researchers. And she's someone who has spent time looking at this intersection of, you know, the history of beer and race. Shout out to Dr. J. And then uh, Shalonda White, who is also known as Afro Beer Chick online. And she actually shared and started this movement, this hashtag mm-hmm. movement, I Am Craft Beer, when she was the recipient of some pretty disgusting, racist, you yeah, know, I remember that a couple uh, years ago. mail that she yeah. published and shared a post about it and raised the fact that, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, because people were questioning, like, well, what are you doing here? And she's like, wait a minute. And she's just like, I know my history. You know, <laughs> let me, let me, let me teach you. This isn't just a thing for white dudes with beards who wear plaid. 
Like this is for all of us and no one person or demographic gets to exclude anybody, particularly the folks who started it. Right. You know, like check the facts, bro. So I ask all of our guests the same three questions. Number one, what is a beverage trend that you're really feeling or enjoying this summer? So the trend that I'm feeling or enjoying this summer is how there is a centering of blackness around discussions about food and beverage. And so whether that's, um, you know, the new series High on the Hog, this beautiful new publication for the culture, which if you haven't, please, it's beautiful. It's awesome as magazine celebrating black women and femmes and food and wine. Um, and even like, I finally have ca- been catching up with the current season of Top Chef. And I'm like, is this the first season there hasn't been like a white guy in the final? Like, you know, I'm like, has this ever happened? Right. And I appreciate them including some of the past contestants like Chef Kwame and, you know, other folks, you know, in a more um, intentional way. Okay. So I'm just All like, right. yes, I'm here for it. It's a great season. So counter to that, what is the food or beverage trend that you're hating mm-hmm. on right now? <laughs> so I mentioned one, which is I don't get the whole hard seltzer thing. I just I'm suspicious, and it's it's interesting to me. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you there. I don't I don't understand that. What is your closet food or snack obsession that you might be embarrassed if people knew? So why the reason I love this question is because I actually have a closet. <laughs> that has my snack. Well, that, I didn't mean, I didn't mean like in my literally kitchen, in the closet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but where's Tinu? Oh, she's in the snack closet. So, okay. So there's three. Three. Banana down laters. Wow. Which no one loves that. I love the flavor of the old that's banana worst, down laters. That's the worst now and later. Banana down laters. Um... I learned, you know, a few years ago that you could just get like the the pink Starburst. And yes, I am that chick. Flaming hot everything. (laughs) To learn more about Tinu and her documentary, please visit thisbelongstous.com. Please be sure to follow and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at soulfoodie, S O U L. P-H-O-O-D-I-E and check out our website at soulfoodie.com.